Last week, we saw how as a young militia officer, Jacob Hamlin rode against the native tribes with orders to take no prisoners. But instead of killing them, Jacob came to see his role as a messenger of peace. Learning their language and their customs, Jacob came to earn the trust of the native tribes. But life in the Utah frontier was dangerous and brutal. How did he navigate the violence and uncertainties of life on the Utah frontier? We'll explore that and more on this episode, continuing the incredible life of Jacob Hamblin. I'm Nate Olson, and this is Adventures in Mormon History. In 1854, Jacob was called on a mission to the Navajo Nation. The church leaders had learned a lot since the 1849 campaigns against the native tribes. Now, Brigham Young counseled Jacob and the other missionaries to associate with the Indians, keep strife and contention out of your dealings, and prevent bloodshed. Jacob traveled south with his family to be closer to the Navajo Nation. He settled in Harmony, about 20 miles south of Cedar City. Now, he wrote, I made it my principal business to learn the Indian language. He spent his time with the Navajos, starting to become familiar with their traditions and their customs, and he worked hard to earn their respect. Sometimes, this would put him in situations that he wasn't exactly ready for. On one occasion, Jacob was present while two Navajo men disputed over a woman that they both wanted to marry. They had a custom to resolve these disputes. They would fight for her. To set up the contest, the other men in the tribe would form a gauntlet of two files and a claimant would lead her down the middle. Anyone who opposed the claim would step forward and they would fight. The winner would then lead the would-be bride down the gauntlet and fight anyone else who challenged his claim. This would go on until there was an undisputed winner. As Jacob watched, one of the two men, apparently the one who the woman actually wanted to marry, got Badly beaten by his opponent, Jacob watched as the man, battered and bloody, fell to the ground. But the fight took a turn he was not prepared for. The beaten man suddenly turned to Jacob and, reaching out his hand, cried, Brother, help! He was asking Jacob to enter the fight as his ally. All the Navajos present turned to Jacob, waiting to see what their visitor would do. Jacob declined. He wrote, not wishing to take part in this barbaric custom, I objected. But the Navajos then began taunting him, calling him, among other things, a coward and a squaw. Now that changed his mind as he knew he needed to earn their respect to accomplish any good among them. I took the situation and decided it would not do to lose caste among them, so I accepted the challenge as long as they promised not to be angry with me if I hurt some of them. So Jacob took the would-be bride and began leading her down the gauntlet. One warrior stepped out to oppose him, and without a moment's hesitation, Jacob punched him, knocking him flat on his back. Now, to an outsider like Jacob, this contest looked like a free-for-all, but it wasn't. It was a custom that had strict rules. But Jacob didn't know this, and so as he escorted the lady past the fallen contender, Jacob decided to kick him for good measure. This caused a commotion, he recalled, as it was a breach of their code of honor. But the matter was settled when Jacob agreed to pay a fine for his breach, and then he continued to lead her down the gauntlet. It turned out nobody else wanted to risk fighting him, and so Jacob led the lady through the lines unopposed. He then turned her over to the man she desired as her husband. In the summer of 1858, 
Jacob was at his home in Santa Clara, cutting wood. He was about 30 feet off the ground, sawing a tree, and then something happened. Jacob lost his balance, fell 30 feet, and slammed into the ground. He suffered massive injuries, fractures, and internal bleeding. His friends carried him to his house nearly dead. He spent the next 12 hours in a senseless condition, hovering somewhere between life and death. In this state, Jacob experienced something that stayed with him for the rest of his life. Recalling the experience later, he wrote, It seemed to me that I went up from the earth and looked down upon it, and it appeared like a dark ball. The place where I was seemed very desirable to remain. It was divided into compartments by walls, from which appeared to grow out vines and flowers, displaying an endless variety of colors. Jacob's father had died about two years before, but now Jacob saw him. He wrote, I thought I saw my father there, but separated from me. I wished him to let me come into his compartment, but he replied it was not time for me to come. He said, Your work is not yet done. He motioned me away with his hand, and in a moment I was back on the earth. He was brought out to the mountain meadows, where he was kept on a strict diet of goat milk. Over the course of several weeks, he recovered. In the fall of 1858, Jacob was called on a mission to the Hopi Nation of southeastern Utah. Brigham Young and the other church leaders were fascinated by reports of the Hopi Nation, south of the Virgin River and the Colorado River in the daunting Red Rock country of Utah. While no Mormon pioneer had made contact with the Hopis, they reportedly lived in permanent settlements. They spoke a distinct language, and they had a complexion that fueled speculation that they might somehow be related to the people of Wales. Jacob assembled a small group, including 13-year-old Ammon Tenney, a Spanish speaker, James Davis, a Welsh speaker, two of Jacob's brothers, William and Frederick, and four Southern Utah pioneers, Ira Hatch, Samuel Knight, Andrew Gibbons, and Thales Haskell, and their native guide, Nataguatz. There was apparently several different motivations for this expedition. The first was to establish a church mission among the Hopi people. Second, according to Ammon Tenney, they were told to keep a sharp lookout for other areas to which the Mormon people may retreat, in case the Buchanan administration sent another, less accommodating army force to the territory. And finally, Jacob reported that he had heard rumors that some surviving children from the massacre of the Francher Party in 1856 may in fact be living with the Hopi or Navajo people in southeastern Utah. The journey took them through surreal landscapes, over cliffs, mesas, and under the shadow of staggering rock formations. In a letter to Brigham Young, Jacob wrote, These rocks look to be from 500 to 1,000 feet high. The appearance of this was the most grand and sublime of anything I ever saw. But despite the beauty of the landscape, the journey was very difficult. Hunger, thirst, and constant danger of slipping along the cliff tops and falling to their death. The first trip to the Hopi Nation, the Mormon guests were treated with great kindness and hospitality, and it would be the first of several expeditions that Jacob would lead. James Davis tried to strike up a conversation in Welch with the Hopis, and the resulting confusion made it plain to him that their language shared nothing with Welch. In his personal memoirs, Jacob didn't complain very much. He just described, in a matter-of-fact sort of way, 
that they waded through snow up to their knees. They went for days without food. They finally had to eat one of their horses. But the 13-year-old Ammon Tenney could not be expected to maintain the sort of stoic narrative that Jacob left. He said of the trip, The sorrows and hardships on that journey would shock the readers of history. The strength of some of our company reached beyond the endurance of mortal men. We suffered starvation, sickness, without clothing to cover our weak and worn bodies, dysentery followed by hemorrhage. In the fall of 1860, Jacob returned to his effort to establish a permanent mission among the Hopis. He again led a small group, this time bringing along George A. Smith, Jr., son of the church leader George A. Smith, nine men in total with two native women. Now, this was not going to be an easy trip. The journey never was. But this time, Jacob and the others knew the route to take. They knew where to find water, and they had enough supplies to get them through. Even so, Jacob had a gloomy sort of foreboding about this journey. He felt it as they left Santa Clara and again as they began crossing the Colorado River. He shared his premonition with several of the group members. It got to the point where the group asked him point blank whether there was anyone he did not want to travel with or whether he wanted anybody to go back. Jacob told them no, there was nobody he wanted to send back but he was sure that something very bad would happen and some of them would have a hard time. The 18-year-old George A. said, You will see one thing. I will stick to it to the last. That's what I came for. So, determined to see the job through, all of them crossed the Colorado River. Two days later, they ran out of water, but they knew the direction to the next watering hole, and so as they traveled to the desert, they weren't overly concerned. But then, they were approached by four Navajo men who came with a warning, do not go to the next watering hole. Earlier, a group of Navajo warriors had fought a skirmish against a detachment of U.S. Army soldiers, apparently from Camp Floyd on the banks of Utah Lake. In the exchange of gunfire, three Navajo warriors had been killed. Now, This group of Navajos wanted to avenge their fallen brothers, and they were like to attack any group of soldiers or Mormons they came across. The four messengers invited them instead to come to the camp of the Navajo chief, whom the Mormons called Spanishanks. There, they would be safe. Jacob conferred with the group. On the one hand, there was a danger of attack if they pushed onto the watering hole. But on the other hand, they may be stranded in the deserts and all die of thirst if they tried to push their jaded animals all the way to the camp of Spanishanks. They decided to push onto the watering hole and, as Jacob said, risk the consequences. As they reached water, groups of Navajo warriors began to gather around them from different directions. Jacob led the group to the top of a mesa rock formation, which a person could access only through a narrow pass in the rocks. This natural barrier would provide them some protection if they met with the worst. The Navajo warriors made it clear this party would not be allowed to go on to the Hopi nation, but they told them that if they traded with them, they would be allowed to return to Santa Clara unmolested. Seeing no way forward on the expedition, Jacob agreed. They traded some commodities they had for blankets. That seemed to end the trouble, or so Jacob thought. But then, George A.'s horse, on its way back from watering, turned aside and headed away from the camp. George A. started after it. Jacob, preoccupied with trading, called out that he should not go alone. George A., however, replied that it would only take a minute. 
Jacob continued to parley with the Navajos. Some time passed, the warriors took their traded goods and began to head back. That's when Jacob realized, as the time had passed, George A. had not returned. He sent two men after him. They found him, about a mile from the camp. He was lying face down on the trail with four arrows in his back and three bullet holes in him as well. One of the bullets had paralyzed him. He couldn't move, but he was still alive. They gathered him in a blanket and got him back to the Mesa Ridge. In terrible pain, George A. asked the group to leave him on the Mesa so he could die in peace. A message then came from the Navajo warriors for Jacob. Their guide explained what they wanted. As three of their brothers had been killed, they wanted to kill two more of Jacob's party. If Jacob will give them up or let us kill them quietly, the rest of the company may go in peace. Confronted with this demand, Jacob faced a dilemma. What to be done? Though the town of the Hopi nation would almost certainly offer them protection, and they were almost in sight, Jacob saw no realistic chance that they could reach them. Their animals were too jaded, and they certainly wouldn't be able to outrun the Navajo warriors, who now outnumbered his party at least four to one. Now, throughout his life, Jacob had been open to signs, dreams, and visions. He had felt divine guidance inspiring him many times in the past, but there on the Mesa Ridge, Jacob felt nothing. He saw nothing. He wrote later on, The heavens seem like brass over our heads, and the earth is iron beneath our feet. As far as he could tell, they were surrounded by enemies, with one badly wounded companion, jaded animals, and no prospects for rescue. They were on their own. Seeing Jacob struggle with the lack of options, their guide offered that maybe it would be best to just choose two. Maybe draw straws. But Jacob had reached his decision. He wanted to live in peace with the tribes. His mission as he saw it was to bless and not destroy. But with his back to the wall, he again was a soldier. And now he sent a message of his own to the Navajo warriors. It said, It was true that there were only a few of us left, but we are well armed and we will fight the last man. As far as choosing and surrendering two members of the company, Jacob bluntly assessed, I would not give a cent to live after I had given up two men to be murdered. I would rather die like a man than live like a dog. Now, there are two military maneuvers that, even in today's professional army, are notoriously difficult. The first is a wet gap crossing, that is, bringing a force across a river or a lake. And the second is a fighting retreat, or, as we prefer it, a tactical withdrawal. Now, Jacob and his company prepared for both as they began to move. George A. was still alive. Though badly wounded and suffering from loss of blood and paralysis, he knew that bringing him would slow the group down at the very moment that they needed speed. He asked Jacob to leave him behind. It will make very little difference with me, but it may make much with you, he offered. But neither Jacob nor anyone else would hear of this. They managed to get their wounded comrade onto a mule, and, rifles at the ready, they set out. The Navajo warriors saw them coming. As Jacob recalled, the Navajos came down on the group like a whirlwind. As the group raised their rifles to meet the onslaught, someone predicted that they wouldn't last 10 minutes. But nobody flinched. Nobody ran. As the Navajos came on, each sighted his man and waited for the enemy to come within range. And the Navajo warriors 
just before they came within range of the rifles, suddenly veered to the right, not wanting to risk a frontal assault, they made a wide circle around the group but staying out of rifle range. Jacob pressed the company forward as fast as they could, and the Navajo warriors began trailing them. But some unexpected help came to the group in this crisis. The four Navajo men who had warned them of danger now offered to go with them, serving as a rear guard. George, in terrible pain, told Jacob he couldn't see anything. It was all dark. He asked if they could stop. Jacob told him it will not do to stop now and explain the situation. They had to keep going. Oh well, go on then, George resigned. But I wish that I could die in peace. A few minutes later, the young man was dead. The Navajo guards convinced Jacob at this point it was of no use. The only thing that could save their group was speed. They had to leave his body. Jacob agreed, and they wrapped George A. in a blanket and laid his body in a hollow by the side of the trail. They pushed on as fast as they could and finally made a cold camp in a patch of grass long after nightfall. Jacob couldn't sleep, though. Reflecting on the death of his young friend, and how he would have to tell his father and mother and sister what had happened, how he had had to leave his body along the trail, Jacob remembered that these reflections that night pierced me like barbed arrows and caused me the most bitter reflections of my life. The next day, their friends led them into the camp of the Navajo chief, whom the Mormons knew as Spanish Shanks. They were given water and feed for their animals. They learned that in the night, the band of warriors had sent word to the camp, urging them to kill Jacob and the rest of the company. Spanishanks replied that he was chief in that country, and Jacob and his friends would not be hurt. The company made it home without incident, and Jacob broke the news to George A. and his family. But a few months later, in the dead of winter, Jacob led another expedition along the treacherous route to recover the remains of his young friend. He succeeded, but refused Brigham Young's efforts to pay him for it. Life was never easy in Pioneer, Utah. Two years after this expedition, Jacob was at Santa Clara, and he noticed an unusual and heavy rainfall starting in February of 1862. The Santa Clara River began to flood, and then turned into a raging cataract. For safety, families began moving into the fort, which was, as Jacob said, a considerable ways from the river. But during the night, a flash flood came and began washing away the southern bank of the fort, and water began rising all around it. The fort, Jacob saw, was about to go under. Quickly, the families began scrambling for the far bank. Jacob made an effort to save some of the property, but while he was doing this, suddenly, the ground he was standing on gave way, and the torrent washed him downstream. He managed, though, to reach a patch of dirt and prevent himself from being washed down the stream. But he saw that this patch of dirt, his only safety, was quickly growing smaller and smaller. He assessed his situation and estimated his chance of surviving at about one out of a thousand. Just then, though, he heard some men on the bank above him. As he turned, he could hear them assessing his chances. One of them shouted, He's gone! It's of no use trying to save him! Now for somebody like Jacob, whom no danger was too great to risk to save a friend, that comment had to gall. Jacob shouted back, It is of use trying to save me! Throw me a rope! 
Just as the ground was about to give way beneath him, he felt a rope thrown across his shoulders. He grabbed onto it with all his might just as the ground broke. They pulled him to the top of the bank. As Jacob turned, he saw a heavy and rapidly increasing current of water running between the fort and the bluff. Just then, news swept through the group that a sick woman had been left inside the fort. Without losing a moment, Jacob tied the rope that had just rescued him to a tree and managed to get through the current over to the fort where he tied the other end. He then went into the fort found the room where the frightened woman was lying and explained that she must hold on to him while he held on to the rope, as it would take all his strength to keep the flood from sweeping them away. But as they reached the middle of the river, her grip suddenly slipped, and now, instead of grabbing Jacob by the shoulders, she had grabbed him around the throat, in a grip that was not unlike the rear naked choke. Jacob began to strangle, and he saw his only hope was to make the best use of time and strength before he passed out, which would send both of them down the river and to their death. Hand over hand, fighting to stay conscious, without any air to breathe in, Jacob at last made it to the other side, gasping for air. Thank you for joining us on Adventures in Mormon History. These episodes on the incredible life of Jacob Hamblin have not been anything like a complete biography. And there are so many things he did and events he lived through that we have not yet covered. There's plenty of material for future use. I'm Nate Olson, and this is Adventures in Mormon History. <laughs>